1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United
0: Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: I think they'll decide no matter what, look, we have no choice but basically to trust him and his cleared lawyers and push over a lot of discovery. Let's not waste time with a bunch of redactions. Let's not waste time with a bunch of summaries. It's gonna slow everything down and just create appealable issues. So I think they'll take a much lighter approach on a lot of these SEPA issues, at least in the discovery context, um, than they would in a normal case.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 12th, 2023. The indictment filed last week against former President Donald Trump involves hundreds of classified documents, and the first 31 charges involve mishandling individual classified documents. This raises the specter of the Classified Information Procedures Act, otherwise known as SEPA, which is the major instrument through which we handle classified material in criminal cases? How do you prove that the former president mishandled classified information without presenting a lot of classified information in open court? Joining me to talk about it all is Brian Greer, former CIA lawyer and the man behind the At Secrets and Laws Twitter account which you should follow. We talked about the department's options for presenting these 31 documents in court. We talked about whether they can be declassified, whether the department can use something called the silent witness rule. And we talked about whether Donald Trump will make it all crazy because he's Donald Trump. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 12th, Brian Greer on silent witnesses. So I want to start by having you describe a little bit your background with the Classified Information Procedures Act. It's a statute that most people have never heard of, kind of like FISA was before 9-11, but it's going to be absolutely central to the prosecution in South Florida of Donald Trump. And it's actually hard to imagine that indictment being able to be brought but for SEPA. And so uh, talk a little bit about the statute and how you came to uh, to know it so well.
1: Yeah, well, I was an attorney at the CIA's Office of General Counsel from 2010 to 2018. As people know, that was sort of the boom in leaks prosecutions, which are brought under the Espionage Act under the Obama administration. And so I worked on several of those cases that had sort of what they call in the intelligence community CIA equities. Equities is a term that's used a lot there. It doesn't mean ownership interest uh, in terms of stock or quality. It just means having an interest in that information. So there were several leaks cases during that time where we had CIA equities. I worked on several of those cases, and then I was a supervisor on several of those cases, and then also was chief of staff when several of those cases were going on. So I became pretty familiar um, with how these cases work during that time. And then separate from espionage act prosecutions, any other prosecution that has classified information at issue, prosecutors are almost always going to have to rely on SEPA. In 95% of those cases, the only per- purpose of SEPA is just to like get the classified information out of the case completely and just wash their hands of it and go away. Here, the classified information is the core of the charge, right? Um, And that's what you have in any unlawful retention or leaks case. So here, it's got to be managed throughout litigation all the way to trial in order to be successful. That's my experience in it, but we can talk about how it works.
0: Let's come to how it works. In the Trump case, the Justice Department or the special counsel has determined not to charge the unlawful retention of hundreds of documents that it asserts in the indictment were unlawfully retained. None of them are charged except 31. And those 31 each get their own count under 793E. And I assume that those 31 documents among the hundreds of possibilities were chosen for exquisitely precise reasons and some of those reasons are because they're they're illustrative of the diverse types of damage that their retention might have done but presumably some of them are chosen because the department made a judgment that it can figure out under SEPA how to use them effectively. And that unlike some of the others, which may be too sensitive to even talk about in court, these are documents that somehow you can figure out how to get in front of a jury. So before we get to the mechanics of how SEPA works, if you're thinking about this from the Justice Department side, and you've got a mountain of possible documents that you can charge. How do you pick the 31 that you're gonna actually indict on?
1: I think there's two just big buckets they would look at. One is documents that tell a story, right? Like that's what a prosecutor wants. They the smart ones will still think about the classified equities and how they're going to deal with that, but they really want to tell their story, right? And then that goes and meets up with the intelligence community's perspective and they want to minimize the damage to national security. And so they then have your other bucket of let's pick the documents that we could potentially use at trial. If we had to declassify them for trial, we could basically manage that. It's not going to be great. There's still going to be damage to national security, but we can manage that. I was very curious to see if there was an indication in the indictment of sort of which one played out. Um, And it's hard to tell. I think the most the biggest takeaway for me was just that was surprising was the number of charges under the Espionage Act. 31 documents, 21 of which are top secret. Just for comparison, uh, NSA contractor Harold Martin, probably one of the biggest unlawful retention cases out there, he stole terabytes of data, terabytes from the NSA. When he was ultimately charged, they just picked 20 documents and stuck with those. Trump stole a a lot smaller amount, and they still ratcheted up to 31. So to me, it's still unclear what that suggests, but it, 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 suggest that they may be a little less worried about the sensitivity, I think, because so many are top secret, which was a little surprising. And they put in so many. So either there's two things and we don't know yet. One is they're prepared to declassify all of them for trial. B, they're prepared to declassify some of them for trial. And they sort of have like, they're going to basically fall back on a category of them. And we just don't know which ones yet. Um, or they're going to use something called the silent witness rule, which you may have talked about on other podcasts. But basically, that's a rule they can use to use the documents at trial without declassifying them. And we, the basic gist of it is the documents would be shown to the jury unredacted. You would have someone provide testimony to them about the documents, but they would testify in generalities. If it's the Iran war plan document, they would just say, look at paragraph one." that's about the first phase of a potential strike. It's damaging for this general reason and this general reason and just general reason. And just move through the document like that. Document would never be unredacted as an exhibit. The public would never see it. The people in the courtroom would never see it, just the jury and the parties. So that's been used in a lot of espionage, traditional espionage cases and unlawful retention cases successfully. The problem is there's just not a lot of case law on it. There's only really one Uh, appellate court case, and that's in the Fourth Circuit that upheld it. And the big question is, would DOJ use it in this case? And then would it be upheld in a somewhat conservative 11th Circuit and in a somewhat conservative Supreme Court? Do you want to risk it? I generally had no idea coming into this. But given that it's 31 documents and so many are top secret, it may suggest that they they do intend to employ it and to try to avoid the sensitivity that way. If they can successfully employ it, then... You could easily charge them with 50 documents. And you almost don't have to worry about the sensitivity so much in that case. But we just don't know yet.
0: All right. So I want to come back to the silent witness rule and other options. All of these are attempts to implement SEPA. SEPA did not come out of the problem of the government having classified information it wanted to present. It came out of the reciprocal mirror image problem which is defendants threatening to reveal prosecution, so-called gray mail, if the government proceeded against them. So tell us a little bit about the history of the SEPA case and how it came to be used not as a, a mechanism for preventing blackmail against the government, but for allowing the government to use classified material or for managing the way the government presents classified material, both in these leaks case and in terrorism cases.
1: There's sort of two purposes as ICFC, but one is prevent gray mail, as you said. The other is just to take any litigation about discoverability and even more importantly, use relevance and admissibility of classified information at trial and fast forward that to much, much earlier in the case. Normally, if you have a normal case, you might have motions in limine a a month in advance of trial, right? And then you'll have a bunch of motions uh, moving to strike evidence and about admissibility during the trial itself. You can't do that with classified information. You've got to give both sides, including the government, especially in a case like this, time to adjust to the court's rulings and prepare for trial. And so SEPA does just that by having a step-by-step process and think of it as basically a funnel, Um, that is all marching towards trial at the end, at the bottom. And I'm actually going to come out with a little chart that that illustrates this. But at each step of SEPA, from the initial discovery that's pushed over to the fence and then getting ready for trial, the whole point is to narrow the amount of classified information that is going to be used at trial to have an orderly dispute process for narrowing it. And then finally, when you have a trial, hopefully, if everything goes well for the government, you have a nice little tied up package of what's going to happen at trial. Now it's never that it's never a nice little tied up package. There's always going to be unexpected, but but that's the point. And so in a case like this, it allows the government to know in advance: Are we going to use that silent witness rule? For instance, um, in other cases, maybe not here. You might have you might need to have a witness who's covert and they need to testify in disguise or behind a curtain. That happens in a lot of these national security cases. Probably unlikely here, I think. But but you never know. It allows the the justice firm to figure out how they're going to redact the documents at trial and then set up basically what I will just call red lines, which is what we would call them of. If, they're, if you don't want a witness to go past a certain line and testifying about a document, um, or the defense to, just like you would in a normal trial about privileged information or prejudicial information, with the classified information, you can ask the judge to basically say, we're not going to go past this line in a public courtroom. That gives the government a lot of confidence going in trial that's critical to these cases.
0: So in the classic SEPA case... And I want to come to the specialized problem of this type of case. But in the classic SEPA case, say you're trying Aldra James. Aldra James never went to trial, but whatever. And Aldra James threatens, hey, if uh, to defend myself, my Sixth Amendment rights, uh, I have to confront, get to confront all the evidence against me. So you got to give me all this classified CIA material And without it, I just can't possibly defend myself. And, so, you know, I'm really sorry, but if you can't uh, produce that material uh, and I'm going to use it in open court, you, well, you may have to drop the case. Um, And so SIPA says, well, the judge can certify that a summary of that evidence is adequate to give the defendant the same right. Uh, same ability to make the defense as he would otherwise have. And so, you know, he's no worse off. Why couldn't you just do that here? Say 31 good summaries of the evidence of of the documents in question. Uh, This is a document about nuclear secrets. This is a document about Iran. This is a document about why couldn't you do that 31 times here and then just treat those summaries the way you would treat this, the comparable matters in an Aldra James-like situation?
1: Yeah, maybe it's good to just sort of break apart sort of what would happen in a normal case and then what I think might might happen here, because I think they, they could ultimately be much different. And that's a big question is, how much do you treat this case like a normal SEPA case for the government um, and how much you don't? First, the, the first important thing that happens in these classified cases in terms of litigating when information is issue is normally a defendant can claim, I want all information that's relevant to my defense from the government. They'll issue a discovery request for that. Under Rule 16, the government would turn that over. But in in cases involving classified information, there's case law. This does not come from SEPA, the statute. It comes from case law. The leading case is called UNIS. Um, and it basically says, no government, you don't have to turn over everything that's relevant has to be relevant and helpful to the defense. So maybe not quite exculpatory, but still helpful to the defense. And so the first thing the government will do once when it's getting ready to push over discovery is go to the court through SEPA section four and say, we've gathered all the what we think is relevant information, but there's a big chunk of it that's highly classified. And while it's relevant, it's not helpful. And so for the relevant not helpful information they'll just say we want to just delete what's called just delete it from discovery and so they will go ask the court to do that they'll explain it all to the court they might even show the court all the records if they want to see them and then ask them to delete it so that's sort of that happens at the same time as the summaries and substitutions but that's a, a really important step one that i think you probably would potentially see here then this is just discovery again they would do what you said which is for other documents they're very sensitive but look we can do a summary or what's called a substitution, which is basically instead of saying Iran in a document, we're gonna say country A. Or um, instead of saying a very specific date, we might say fall of 2021 or something like that, because that protects some of the classified information issue. So that's what's gonna that's normally what would happen in sort of that first round of CEPA litigation. It's all about discovery. Here, I think they'll be much more judicious about employing those tools because you have a former president of the United States as the defendant, even though he's super untrustworthy, as this case proves and everything else proves, I think they'll decide no matter what, look, we have no choice but basically to trust him and his cleared lawyers and push over a lot of discovery. Let's not waste time with a bunch of redactions. Let's not waste time with a bunch of summaries. It's going to slow everything down and just create appealable issues. So I think they'll take a much lighter approach on a lot of these SEPA issues, at least in the discovery context, um, than they would in a normal case.
0: But then you get to trial.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so that's phase two.
0: You still have to show beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury, with him confronting whatever you get give to a jury, that these documents were in fact classified, that he I mean, the with mishandling of them you can deal with. That's not classified how he what he did at Mar-a-Lago. So you can present all that, but you are gonna have to show that the documents were properly classified, that they were actually national defense information. And my question is, why can't a summary before, why do you need the silent witness rule? Why can't a certified summary by the judge or a substitution by the judge that puts Trump in the same position satisfy the terms of the law?
1: I think there might be other evidence that could come in at trial where a substitution or a summary uh, would work and be approved by the judge. That's sort of like ancillary. But I think for the core charge that the judge, especially if it's canon, but even (laughs) if it wasn't right, I think they're going to say, look, you've charged the person with this document. It's critical that the jury fully understand it and that the defendant who has a Sixth Amendment right to cross examine the witnesses and to a fair trial, that they... Can basically have the jury fully see this document and and understand it. Now, so I think the main tool would again just be that silent witness rule. So at least there, the jury can see it. I would predict there could maybe be light redactions to those documents to stuff that's potentially irrelevant. You know, there may be code words for sources or classification markings and just kind of like stuff that's classified but not that relevant to the case. I could see those being redacted, but then. Trump's lawyers are going to argue that's prejudicial because you were telling the jury that that's sensitive without letting me do it. So what we could maybe do and don't people should not freak out about this. You could maybe alter the documents potentially. Again, the court would fully approve this. But basically, if there was something sensitive, you could remove it from the document in a way that the jury wouldn't see, but would not be prejudiced. That way, it wouldn't be prejudicial to Trump. That would all be approved by the court that's a more likely outcome of, can we alter the documents in a way that the jury still sees what they need to see and it doesn't prejudice Trump?
0: In other words, to take the example of the material that is supposedly about nuclear stuff, if the gravamen of it is that it's about U.S. nuclear secrets, and down at the bottom it says, and by the way, there's a U.S. agent in Moscow named Brian Greer, you could perhaps say, okay, we're presenting this as evidence of nuclear stuff. There's no relevance to the fact that it also outs a US uh, intelligence asset. Can we just remove that? Uh, And since it has nothing to do with why it's coming in or what the jury's supposed to take from it, that kind of alteration is is potentially doable.
1: Yeah, I think that's the most likely one we might see with those documents. They'd still sort of make it look exactly like the normal document, but you might just like white out completely white out a paragraph for instance so that it's just not apparent at all
0: but as to the core issue i take it the reason you can't treat this like a perfectly normal traditional kind of sepa thing is that the crime is the document and that exactly. that trump has to be able to argue hey Look at it. It's not that sensitive. It's stuff that here was the New York Times reporting the same thing. Here was it's not like you know, if you're accused of of espionage and you know, the person who's testifying against you, their identity is protected. Okay, you make an accommodation so that their identity remains protected, right? It's this is the crime.
1: Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So you might be more likely to see the summary you're talking about with maybe some evidence that's exculpatory, for instance, like if the CIA got a cable in from a foreign government after telling them this document had been compromised, just making this up. And they said, you know what? Not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Right? Like that would be very exculpatory. That would be provided to Trump. But they still probably wouldn't want to turn over that cable. So they would write a summary of it and then turn that over. And you know what? Trump could maybe try to use that at trial. It's not actually admissible evidence, right? Like that's hearsay, <laughs> right? So they would only be able to use it on cross-examining the classification expert for the government to say, "Well, hey, did you know this foreign co- country said it's not really a big deal?" You could see like a summary being used in that context. That would, I, and I could see that being totally fine in this case. But for the core documents, I just don't think like those kind of summaries are going to fly with the court.
0: All right. So that leaves you with two options, which you articulated before. I want to deal with the simple one first. 31 documents. Why not, if you're Jack Smith, you said you're a prosecutor, you want to tell the story. It's the agency counsel's job to freak out about what you can tell a story with. But if I'm Jack Smith I actually really want to be able to go into court and not litigate a whole lot of SIPA issues. I want to move this case quickly. SIPA takes for freaking ever. And by the way, uh, for those of you who think that criminal trials don't produce interlocutory appeals, uh, SIPA is a bit of an exception to that. It specifically authorizes interlocutory appeals for all these these interim judgments about what's going to get presented and what summaries are adequate and what substitutions are adequate. So I'm thinking I want to get this case litigated in a reasonable time frame. The guy's running for president, you don't want a disposition to take forever. Why not choose 31 documents that you can just you've worked out in advance, agency counsel. Agent, the agencies are going to declassify them. They'll take a hit. Whatevs. Uh, you have 30. It's only 31 documents. Why not just declassify them?
1: Yeah. I mean, my reaction was, oh man, that's a lot of documents. Like, <laughs> And maybe I got sucked in a little bit, you know, that we had the news on Thursday, right? That, yeah, like, that was there were only seven counts, which didn't seem right. But I was like, you know, Doing the math, you're like, okay, maybe three or four SBN object cases. That seemed a little low to me, but I was still, I'd basically convince myself that that's a good theory because that way, if you did just do a few, you could get to trial pretty quickly with three or four documents. I just candidly think unless they are 100% buttoned up and prepared to push over a bunch of classified discovery the second they can, uh, which would require basically an unprecedented amount of work pre-indictment. I've never seen a case like that. Um, unless they're prepared to do that, there's basically zero chances is going to go to trial unless Trump enforces his own speedy r- trial rules and which I don't think he, his rights and I don't think he will. But I think the my big takeaway is there's no chances of going to trial before the election. This is just going to be way too complicated because I'm just skeptical that they're that prepared because you've got to think of not just the documents, but the mountain of discovery behind those documents. So they're going to turn over all their investigative files. That's easy. They're going to turn over all of the documents themselves. They're going to turn over any classification reviews or damage assessments from the from that the agencies did. That's all the easy part. The question, which I've seen handled differently in every case, is for each document, what is your discovery obligation in terms of what the document is about? Right. Like, let's say there's a document about the Iranian war plan that Miley produced in you know whatever year. Like, do you have to produce a bunch of other documents about other Iranian war plans or even other iterations of that particular Iranian war plan or how Iran might respond. Like like there's not a lot of case law on that obligation because there haven't been a lot of these unlawful retention cases, but um, I've seen it approach and I've seen DOJ take a very broad approach to what needs to be produced there and a very narrow one. So the only way they might be doing 31 and still think they're going to get it done quickly is they're going to take a very narrow approach to discovery and say, no, even though this document is about Iran's nuclear ambitions, we're not going to produce anything else about Iran's nuclear ambitions, because it's not relevant and helpful. So that's the big question. We just don't know the answer. All
0: right. Second option, silent witness rule. Uh, You've kind of described it in high altitude terms. Let's break it down. Uh, Jury gets the whole document, maybe with minor alterations, approved by the judge, blah, blah, blah. But jury sees the whole thing. The people in the gallery, in the transcript, uh, in the press, see nothing. And you have somebody testifying who is authorized to discuss it at a certain level of altitude and only at a certain level of altitude.
1: Is that a a fair? That's a perfect summary uh, of how it would work. Um, And again, it's been done a lot of the most common use in a, a traditional espionage case where the person has passed secrets to the foreign government, um, there, you know, why should the government have to declassify that very sensitive information that they passed to China or Russia for the trial? And so I think the courts have been sympathetic to the government <laughs> in those cases and basically upheld the use of that rule. Um, and I just it's a tough question of whether they would do that here and then create a bunch of bad case law. That will impact other national security cases. The Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court could take the Bush v. Gore approach and just be like, only for this case, we're not going to uphold it, but still go ahead with uh, all the bad guys we don't like. That's one possibility. But it's just dicey because for those who don't know, you know, you have a right to an open trial, um, first of all, and the press will also try to enforce that under the First Amendment. And then you have a right to cross-examine witnesses. And that's what Trump would argue is, I can't effectively cross-examine a witness about this. You know, As an example, you know they may not even want to talk about the document itself. They might want to say, well, you've just heard all this testimony. It's so sensitive. But did you know there's a front page Washington Post story from a month after this document was produced that talked all about this program in intimate detail? And I want to talk about that detail with the witness. Like they would argue I can't do that. I think that's even in the Mallory case, which is the 4-second circuit that was held they wrestled with that and they still ultimately held that it was okay. But if you're just putting aside the Trump thing and just thinking about criminal defendant rights, it's not a it's not a frivolous argument, right? So so we'll see what happens.
0: So why let's look at it from a point of view of sympathy to Trump or at least sympathy to criminal defendants. Why is it okay? So you're accused of leaking document X, or, or I've made you the defendant too many times here. I'm accused of, okay. <laughs> of of leaking document X, and that document is a highly classified, and B, the government claims it's national defense information uh, for purposes of the Espionage Act. And my defense is no, actually, it's not highly sensitive. In fact uh the washington post reported substantially the same thing before it was produced or just after it was produced and by the way it's an intelligence document not a national defense document so my defense is is predicated on a close comparison of the document to publicly available material and it's predicated on saying, actually, if you read the document carefully, it is not national defense information within the meaning of the Espionage Act. Well, I got to be able to interrogate the witness who's testifying about the the document in order to do that. Why isn't it a Sixth Amendment problem to have a witness who's only prepared to discuss it at a certain level of altitude?
1: It, it's a great It's a great question. And I think that's the nervousness I feel as an outside observer. I'm sure there are people in the Justice Department that feel that same way. And I'm sure my former colleagues at the CIA feel the same way. The answer is almost circular, which is just that for it to be used, the judge will have to sign off on it all. They'll hear arguments from both sides and the judge will determine that whatever rules they've set in place, which would still allow the defendant to make arguments, uh, maybe not as in the detail they want, that that is still basically an adequate substitute for just talking about the document in great detail. And then the court of appeals could basically hang their hat on the fact that the trial court found that it was an adequate substitute or summary or use of the silent rule that allowed them to defend it. But it's still a fair question of, is that true or not?
0: And the standard of adequacy, as I, re- it's been a while since I've looked at Siba, but the standard of adequacy yeah. as I understand it is, that it puts the defendant in substantially the same position to make a defense as he would have been with the original material, right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. And again, in the the most SEPA cases, like I said, most of the classified stuff is just sort of ancillary exculpatory, but not really exculpatory information. And so it's sort of easy to make that determination. Here, when it's the core evidence in the case, it's just much, much harder.
0: All right. So thinking about that, as you've said, it's unthinkable this goes to trial before the election. Presumably Jack Smith knows that, right? right? Yep. He's not, he's not, you don't think he's kidding himself about
1: this. Unless by some miracle, they have all the discovery ready, which would be reams and reams of evidence. And I just, don't think it's possible like I, I think they would just have to assume by bringing this case in Florida especially you've got judges who aren't as familiar with classified information you've got the canon factor I just don't think they could have concluded that unless they had everything ready There's just very practical problems like the redaction software that the US government uses is based on like 2002 technology <laughs> right like like just literally doing minimal redactions to documents is difficult. They might just push it all over. With no redactions, like I said, let's just treat this as a different case because it's former president. We're going to do very light SEPA work in the discovery phase. That's the only chance I can see of this happening, but, but I just don't think it will. I don't even know if, when will Trump have cleared attorneys. Well, right, so that's to go, that's
0: actually yeah. the question I was going to come to next. Um, even bigger than the canon factor is the lawyer factor. It seems to me SEPA requires. Not necessarily a trust relationship with the defense bar, but a an ability to share highly classified information with the defense bar, even the defense bar representing some people who are accused of, of awful things. Trump cannot retain, uh, and here I mean retain as in the Espionage Act use of the word retain, not in the sense of having a retainer. He cannot retain counsel for more than a few months. Who is the cleared counsel who is going to, I mean, I could have seen it with Jim Trustee, but Jim Trustee's gone as of yesterday. Who's the cleared counsel who's going to be able to work for Donald Trump for more than, you know, six hours at a time?
1: Yeah, we don't, we still don't know, right? Like he's now gotten rid of most of the team. There's the two new people whose names I don't even have not memorized yet because they're so new, you know, but even then there's been reporting that he wants a couple attorneys with national security experience, which he should. Um, so implying that they're going to bring on more people to the team, but they haven't even identified those people, right? And then all of them who he wants to get cleared have to get cleared. The government can do that pretty quickly when they, when they really want to. It'll be sort of a very, very quick background check. But even that could take a month, you know, and then that's before you actually get into, you can't even push over any discovery that's classified until you've gotten to that phase yet.
0: All right. So I want to talk about some contingencies that Jack Smith might make in order to address this problem. One is to supplement this indictment with an indictment in Washington Maybe in the obstruction department, maybe in uh, that does not implicate some of the same issues, you know, false statements or. And there has been some reporting that, you know, there may be false statements cases percolating in Washington related to this. But I'm not sure how you litigate any of those cases without the classified discovery, because they all have at their bottom right, that there are these classified documents that he was not entitled to have. And even if you brought the other case in Bedminster, that's about a different set of classified documents, right?
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. There's no way you're getting away even in a pure obstruction case or false statements case from the classified information. But it would be much easier for, because there the documents aren't the core, the, the classified nature is not the core charge, right? So you could see I kind of started psyching myself into just bring a pure obstruction case. That way it could be quick because there you avoid a lot of the problems that we talked about. You still have the discovery problem. You've got to turn that stuff all over in discovery, but at trial, right? Like the classified nature of the document isn't really relevant, particularly if you charged obstructing, obstruction related to the grand jury subpoena, the subpoena just called for documents marked as classified. So all you would have to show the jury marked as classified. You could redact the rest of it. Easy case. I don't even know if we'd call that the silent witness rule, but you know, you would just redact the document. Like there is a beauty in that. And they obviously chose that not to take that route. And for very good reasons, I think, but that's still possible in another case, but it's still not going to be as easy as people might think.
0: All right. So all of that says to me, if you're Jack Smith and Uh, that puts a premium on the January 6th stuff, which there's a premium on for other reasons as well. Like it's the most serious allegations against Trump. And you probably feel a civic obligation to make that case if you can. But it doesn't involve classified information among its other, among the many problems that the January 6th committee had in getting material was not that there was substantial classified material we have typically thought of the Mar-a-Lago case as easier than the January 6th case because it's kind of legally cleaner. But is there reason to think that Smith might think about it the opposite way, that this is actually a hard case to try, whereas the January 6th case, there are some kind of period, really serious questions of law that you got to get through. But the factual development is actually relatively easier.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great just way to see them like this case, establishing the elements of the crimes in the Mar-a-Lago case seems very cut and dry, right? Like, I don't want to say the word slam dunk, but it just in terms of legally establishing them based on everything that's in the in the indictment, if they can prove that at trial, like easy. It's, not, it's not
0: subtle that, 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 yeah, that this right. stuff is illegal,
1: the the challenge there is everything we just talked about, which is the, the the process of getting to that point because of the classified nature is the only real problem in that case. There's some others with canon. Is she gonna uphold the search warrant? Is she gonna uphold the corcoran stuff coming in? Like there's other things that aren't classified that could drill the case, but the number one there is classified. You don't have those evidentiary problems, I think, in January 6th, but you're right. You have these sort of novel legal questions about. What are the elements of those crimes that some of which haven't really been charged that much, although now we have some case law in D.C. about that? And, you know, those cases are still pretty complicated from a discovery perspective, right, just given the the mounds of evidence. I, I don't follow those cases as closely, but I would presume by now the Department of Justice has like a gigantic discovery package that it just pushes out in all those cases. But to get to that point has been a big pain, I know.
0: Yeah, but I don't I actually think the problem is different because I think the what my colleague Roger Parloff calls the white-collar January 6th cases is going to have a very different discovery package than the blue-collar rioters' yeah, cases. Yeah, I think that's right. And yeah. But I think the problem with Trump, for particularly in the January 6th context, is that there are some novel and serious uh, presidential power questions that arise only with respect to prosecuting Trump that are really hard and completely uh their issues of first impression right like like you know what 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 is the scope of the uh plain statement rule as pertains to statutes that don't mention the president that you know anyone else who he uh who did these things clearly violates you know these laws but you know is it different for the president? I, I think those are questions you're going to have to litigate. I would hope they would be resolvable in in a direction that wouldn't preclude a, a, a conviction, but I'm not sure of it. And But once you get past that, proving what Trump did is not very difficult. It's I mean, he did so much of it in public.
1: Yeah. I've always thought, again, not an expert on those cases, but that they would at most bring a very narrow case focused on the fake elector scheme. Um, because there at least there's a little, you don't have to deal with quite as much weird presidential questions about first amendment rights and some of the, what some of these statutes mean? You basically came up with a scheme to submit false evidence to states and the Congress and there's false statements and maybe even like wire fraud and, and other fraud related charges that are maybe are a little easier there than like, any of the other number of January 6th charges.
0: But the the point for present purposes is that none of the information in question is classified, right?
1: No. no, And so- So So it's, they're just like almost the mirror image of each other in cases, I think.
0: So if Smith had called you and said, here's the case I want to bring. I want it to move at a reasonable pace. How do I tailor it to move at a reasonable pace? What would you have said to him? Would you have looked at this indictment and said, you know, 31 is a lot? Do two?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, don't, I I, I, had just, my gut sense before was like 10 to 15 was kind of the sweet spot of, you know, that's sort of showing the gravity of the charge, getting all you probably need for any under the sentencing guidelines to get a, a legitimate sentence, um, showing the public how serious it is. Um, and, and not sort of letting him off the hook. Also knowing, right, that like in sentencing, if he's found guilty of just five documents, the Department of Justice is going to mention all the 300 other plus documents in the sentencing process. So you can still make those arguments. So I, I don't really understand unless they're these all fit some sort of pattern. Right. Which we don't know yet, which maybe we could talk about that because there's some hints of patterns in in these documents. Do they all fit a pattern that's common? Is there a story behind it? And is the government prepared to like just basically declassify all this stuff? Like if if the answers to all that are yes, you might be able to do this quickly. But if if this is just like a random assortment, I think it's gonna be a very complicated case that's gonna take a while.
0: All right. Let's talk about patterns. Yeah. Matt Tate wrote on Lawfare and on his substack a long analysis of what he thinks these documents contain based on various tea leaves. Why do you think these 31, if not because they're easily declassifiable, what do you think the pattern is that they reflect that cause them to be the 31 that warrant counts?
1: I mean, one one thing that's interesting is the indictment gives zero hints of that, right? Like. Zero. Like, there is no story of why he did this. And one thing I pointed out was the very first paragraph in the timeline, right, is Trump taking the documents out of the White House. It is one paragraph. And all it says is Trump was personally involved. I bet, you know, they've probably interviewed 20 people involved in that process. I'm sure they have some additional evidence of that. Uh, there's nothing, uh, no details at all about that or anything prior to that. So it's just very curious that they've just decided we're not telling that story now. Maybe there's not a story. Maybe they want to hold it back. But that's a big question. Looking at the 31 as a whole, the only real commonality is a lot of way more than I expected are top secret in terms of what they chose to charge 21 of the 31. And then almost all of them seem to be focused on some sort of military, you know, military activities or capabilities of one or multiple foreign countries. And so that's a little curious. There's a whole world of intelligence topics out there that aren't military, um, that I'm sure the president is constantly briefed on. Military is one of the biggest buckets, right? But there's a whole host of other stuff. So the military theme is interesting. still don't know what to make of it. One sort of theory is maybe they were like, look, to make this easier, th- let's just, these are all DIA documents. I think some of them may be PDBs, as Matt's pointed out, but like, let's just at least just work with the DIA on this and and make it a little easier. Now, a lot of the DIA information came from the CIA or the NSA or whatever, but at least it's a little easier. I don't really know if that's true either. Um, But the the one thing I think is very interesting is, which I did notice initially, which is they did charge him with documents that he voluntarily returned in response to the grand jury subpoena. Now, keeping them that long as he did willfully is still a crime. So he should still be charged with those. I didn't think they would really charge many of those because obviously the ones he kept after that and had to be located in the search warrant are just looks much worse, but they charged, I think 10 of the 31 are from are ones he turned into that grand jury subpoena. Every single one of those is top secret. They had a bunch of secret level documents that he returned with the subpoena too, I think out of the 38, but they just focused on top secret. They are all from uh, a several month, with one exception, all from between August and December of 2019. And they all relate to some sort of military activities or capabilities. So I saw Matt Tate's post. Um, I kind of just put this out there, just focusing on those documents. What are those about? It seems too coincidental for them to be completely unrelated, right? With all being top secret, all military, all from this this narrow frame of time. He pointed out that that was when Trump announced he was withdrawing from Syria. And then Turkey was basically going to move into northern Syria and wipe all the Kurds out. Maybe that some of the dates sort of line up there. Maybe they're all about that. Maybe, you know, the Soleimani strike was in January of 2020. So right after that, maybe some of that was the lead up to that. Seems a little too long of a window for me because they date back to August. Maybe. And then I hate playing like conspiracy theorist. But the big thing that was going on in the world then was the impeachment of Donald Trump. (laughs) Right over uh, Ukraine and withholding military aid from the Ukraine. So that's another that would be my sort of third theory. I think Matt's is probably the most is probably correct of the three, but we don't know. But I do think there's a pattern with those documents. And then again, why did DOJ charge those documents? There's a possibility Canon could say there was not probable cause for the search warrant. Those documents aren't coming in. That would be utterly insane, but she's proven that she's capable of such a ruling. So it's good to have some documents that could still come in. Um so it and makes just, sense. To and him. just to be
0: clear what What you're saying here is if you suppress everything seized in the search, that wipes out the 21 documents that come from that were seized in the search, but it doesn't wipe out the ones that were returned and nonetheless retained. And so you could proceed with those 11 nonetheless. Or right, 10.
1: right, and yeah, ten, yeah, I think it's ten, and yeah, you'd still have a viable espionage case. Then there'd be some interesting questions of what does that do for the obstruction case if you don't have sort of the fruits of the obstruction coming into evidence. But but yeah, it, so kudos to them. I always try to remind myself, even with my experience, the people doing this are very very smart and much smarter than we are, <laughs> and they and they understand their case more than we do. So it's always bad to second guess, and, and so kudos to them. I think for for thinking let's have a big backup strategy with those documents. Again, the curious thing is like, there seems to be some common theme in those documents combined with the fact that they're completely silent on anything about why Trump chose those documents um, in particular, even like where they were located, right? Like the search warrant affidavit have details that aren't in here. Them be, some being located in his desk, it would have been easy to say document four of the indictment was located in his desk or in his office. Like, They left all that out. So it's it's a little curious as to why they did that.
0: So you are actually an interesting person to talk to about all this because you, at least to my knowledge, have never been a federal prosecutor. You've been kind of agency counsel working with federal prosecutors on these cases. And I... Uh, one of the things about these cases that's so interesting is the tensions between the Justice Department and the agencies. The Justice Department always wants to use as much as they can. And, you know, the agency counsel, the agency non-counsel really hold them back. So uh, talk a little bit about that relationship and that tension. What is it? You know, it's a tension that doesn't exist in most cases, but in national security cases you know, the the agencies have equities that are very different from the Justice Department's.
1: Yeah. So you can think of the agency lawyer in these cases as sort of being, at a basic level, the middleman between the Department of Justice on the one hand and the, and the agency, let's just say the CIA on the other. But it's not a middleman role. You are a very active participant in all the discussions because, frankly, the other folks at the CIA, while they're all very smart, they're not lawyers. Um, they're not experienced litigators like like you are. So they litigation is very foreign to them. So your job in dealing with all the folks at the agency is to basically handhold <laughs> them and that teach them that it's going to be okay. We have all these SEPA tools, um, as we've been talking about, that we can use. And then try to come to a common ground with the Department of Justice on how this information is going to be used. In a case like this, y- you still need to coordinate with like, the relevant people at sort of a working level, because they know the most about these documents. And then you've got to sort of work that up the chain in your agency to the deputy director and the director who's ultimately going to sign off on this. But then you've got the whole other side of the equation, which is the Department of Justice. So in that role, you're not formally part of the team, you are not prosecuting anyone, you are really representing the victim, uh, in this case, which is the agency. And but you still it's the lawyers, at least they're I wouldn't say they're prosecution oriented, but they they th- being a lawyer and having litigation experience, you want these cases to work. It's important for the US government, for the federal for the department of justice to be able to prosecute people like this. So it's not like what you might think about from reading papers where they're just saying no, no, no to everything. That's not really how it works. They work very cooperatively to find something that works so you can make these cases succeed. on the DOJ side, historically you would have a lot of problems where a prosecutor is coming into a case. And you have someone out there who has key evidence and who's telling them no, you can't use it. They've never been told no, <laughs> you can't use something in their life. And so when that happens, there's a lot of tension. But that is one of the reasons the National Security Division was created, of which is in Maine Justice and has a bunch of seasoned attorneys whose job whose job it is to coordinate with agency councils. So thankfully, people like Jay Bratt and other members of his team have a lot of experience dealing with the CIA and they're attuned to these sensitivities and attuned to figuring out, no, we have to work out. It's more like the prosecutors out in the rest of the country who don't understand this, but that's why people like Jay Brad are there because they can sort of, they're used to sort of balancing all this. So it is a process that can work very well in cases that have been a part of and very, very professional. And it is a process that can get very, very ugly and very, very heated. The only time in my life someone stormed, stormed out of a, a meeting I was with in person was a prosecutor once having a discussion about SEPA, basically, and how we we're going to handle a case and just got up and left the room. I've never had that happen before, because it can get so tense. But but everyone, because of all the leaks cases we had in the Obama years, and all the other national security cases, there is now, just like there is now muscle memory on the counterterrorism front, there is muscle memory on these cases. Um, which will hopefully make these cases successful.
0: One last question. What about the Trump factor? These cases involve, normally, involve spies. Uh, Well, he's not one of those. Uh, They involve people who are, you know, for one reason or another, quite eccentric and angry. You know, the not that he's gone to trial, but the Edward Snowden types, and they involve people whose motives can be very obscure. They don't generally involve celebrities, much less celebrity former presidents, much less people whose social media followings are immense and who have entire media organizations at their beck and call much less such people while they're running presidential campaigns. How does the nature of the defendant change the SEPA landscape?
1: That's one of the biggest questions I have is, do you treat this like a normal SEPA case, or do you treat it like a completely different one? Because not just because of Trump, because it's a former president of the United States. So just to get back to the SEPA mechanics, the first thing that would happen that really matters in the SEPA case is you enter a SEPA protective order under SEPA section three, And that basically governs um, a lot of things relating how the case is going to proceed with classified information in terms of access. But the important thing about that is anyone who then gets access to classified information, including Trump, if they violate their protection of that information, not only might they be committing a crime, they're violating the judge's order, which creates a whole nother set of problems for them. And is generally I would view as worse depending on the judge. Now, again, if it's Judge Cannon... That's not a great thing. She may tolerate tweets that that cross the line in a way that other judges want, but normal judges would be so strict about this that the defendant would never think of violating that order separate from the the statutes. But then the big question is, what is Trump going to get access to in discovery? So normally, a defendant in a case like this would only get access to records that they had access to in government. So with Trump, everything, all the three hundred plus documents, he's going to be able to see. Normally, everything else would only then go to clear defense counsel only and there would be a fight about them wanting to talk to the defendant about it, but normally they wouldn't get to. Here, I don't even know if DOJ will have that fight. I think they'll just say, he's a former president of the United States, even though he didn't personally have access to the stuff he theoretically could have. So everything from his tenure, we're just not gonna restrict it. We're gonna say that he can see it. There'll still be a question though, if there'll be a lot of discoverable materials from after he was president, do they give those to him or not? That's a big question. And then to your sort of more general, so that's sort of the mechanics of all this. Then to your general question of Trump is going to be Trump <laughs> throughout the, these proceedings, right? And one thing I'm thinking is he will be any sort of use of SEPA or whatever, he's going to be screaming about secret trial, secret trial, right. star, star chamber proceeding, you know. And so back to our discussion about the silent witness rule, right? Like if that's being used, he's going to put aside the if it's upheld constitutionally he's going to scream to the heavens about this is a sham secret trial. Does DOJ really want to go through that or not? So, but again, 31 documents suggest unless there's some amazing decision to declassify all of them, suggest to me like DOJ may actually try to treat this a little more like a traditional case. We just don't know.
0: We are going to leave it there. Brian Greer, thank you so much for joining
1: us today. Thank you for having me.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode was me. I did it myself. You yourself should become a material supporter of lawfare i keep saying this it is a felony to provide material support to terrorist organizations if they have been designated by the secretary of state as foreign terrorist organizations it is not a felony it is a virtue to provide material support to organizations that publish lawfare there is only one you can become a material supporter at patreon.com/lawfare The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the one and only Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.